Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden. With me today is Stephen Tredgett, a partner at private equity fund manager Oakley Capital. We're going to talk about Oakley Capital Investments, the London-listed investment company the firm runs, and what its recent results say about the state of private equity and public stock markets. Stephen, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me here today, Gavin. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us more about Oakley Capital. Who founded it and what does the firm do? Sure. So it was founded in 2002 by a serial entrepreneur by the name of Peter Dubens. Um, and and Peter's kind of desire in, in opening Oakley Capital was that he constantly lamented the quality of private and public backers of, of, of companies. He basically wanted to create the financial backer he didn't have. Someone that had empathy, understanding, provide the support that he felt you needed as a, as a private company. As you say, he was a serial entrepreneur. I've read that he, you know, in his 20s, he had a business selling um, colourful T-shirts or something, heat-related mm. uh, heat, heat uh, uh, T-shirts. But he, he really made his name uh, turning around an internet company called Pipex. He did. He Make did. his fortune yeah. when he was age 40. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the profile say. The young age of. Yeah. I guess what's most notable about that is that he, he had success through a whole range of different sectors. And, but he had success in the public markets in his last two vehicles, which actually speaks to why OCI came into being, um, Oakley Capital Investments. He had two vehicles that he had great success with. One was Pipex and the other was um, 365 Media. Both were sold. Um, and then post that, he decided to launch Oakley Capital, not only to kind of create that supporter of business founders, but also, I guess, from, from his own personal perspective, to have permanent capital that he could invest fund to fund. So um, what funds do you run and um, yeah, what kind of funds are they? Sure. So I think the first thing to kind of establish is these are kind of medium size buyout funds. What I mean by that is we're, we're investing in companies which are any, have enterprise value anywhere from 50 million euros up to 500 million euros. They will be somewhere based in Europe, southern and western Europe, typically. Including the UK? Or including the UK. Yeah, most predominantly UK, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France. And we're talking private, unquoted companies, companies that have not reached the stock market. Exactly, and may never reach the stock market, I think, is a pertinent point these days for, for all companies, particularly private equity. They will typically sit within three, sorry, our stake will particularly taking a controlling stake. That's what the, a buyout fund kind of refers to. They will typically sit across three different sectors, technology, consumer, when we say consumer, it's consumer digital, um, and education. And if there was a flavor of the type of companies that might sit within those funds, um, they will frequently be digital disruptors, often in regions where there's maybe modest internet penetration or modest um, adoption of solutions of these kinds. Um, or they are, you know, we've seen the opportunity to build a best-in-class industry leader who can really dominate a really interesting niche um, within the sectors that we focus on. And with the money, the capital that you provide, they can go out and buy other companies. Exactly. So build through acquisition. We're, we're doing one of two things. We're kind of giving them the capital for growth and we're giving them our resources and our knowledge and experience to kind of help them transform, digitalize them, improve their senior management, M&A, internationalize the kind of typical PE toolkit. Right, so going back to kind of Peter Dubin's motivation then, providing them with the kind of backer that he'd like to have had 
back in the day. Yeah, I mean, let's let, let's be frank here in this discussion. And entrepreneurs are not straightforward individuals. I mean, their success is born on the fact that they're probably rule breakers, they're non-compliant, they're untraditional, and to therefore to treat them all the yeah, same. I'm thinking of Elon Musk straight away. <laughs> exactly. Well, think of think of any of those great, you know, the great entrepreneurs that we know more about. And I'm sure you know, there's been a thousand studies about entrepreneurs and what makes them different and what makes them successful. Frankly, from my perspective, that's one of the key ones. It, it's being non-compliant is kind of important because how you do something different to the market if you follow you know, all the same rules. If you're going to work with individuals like that, you need to adapt accordingly. And that's what we do well, given the culture and entrepreneurism that's in, installed within the business. The interesting thing about that, and I think one of the things that defines Oakley maybe differently to any other private equity investor, if you can have that relationship and trust with a business founder, um, you attract, you, we become the kind of partner of choice now throughout Europe. We've backed probably, you know, 25 plus individuals, some of them now, when you have success with them and you've proven that, you know, you're not ogres, you, we've backed a number of them kind of three or four times. In these companies, they won't be straightforward. They're not ready for an auction or a big competitive process. There may be, you know, there may not be perfect management information systems, no perfect accounting. They may have slightly messy shareholder structures. Whatever it is, there's some mess to navigate. And if you are well positioned to navigate that mess, you can get it all complexity. You can get into these companies at really interesting valuations. The founder's not necessarily looking to exit. They're looking for a financial partner. So they're not looking to necessarily maximize their entry valuation. And so incredibly, we're buying into companies which are profitable, fast growing. So average EBITDA growth of about 30%. When you say EBITDA, that's earnings before interest and tax and depreciation. It's, it's, it's profits, sorry, yeah. underlying it profits. Is, it is underlying profits. Um, so they're growing fast and they're profitable. Um, but we're getting in an average multiple of about nine and a half times that, that EBITDA number, which is unthinkable when you consider what you might have to pay for those kind of assets in And we've seen public, um, public stock markets in the UK and the US trading at close to 20 times. 20 times sales. I mean, like, you know, in some cases within technology. But yes, I mean, the NASDAQ is at least at that valuation. And in fact, your annual report last year showed that that multiple that uh, was around about 13.9 on average around your portfolio. So you're buying in at about nine, nine to 10. And you're, they're kind of growing to around 14. That's the current. Your, uh, yeah, that's the current line. holding value. So what we typically find, let's say, for example, we own an asset for four years. You acquire it at that average entry valuation of nine. We typically, we say that the multiple is the thing that is pretty subjective. And as you know, with the public markets, they're changing every day. You only really know with a private asset what the multiple is when you buy it and when you sell it. So we tend to hold the multiple at the point we buy that for probably quite a prolonged period. For the first year or so, it certainly remains at that multiple. Then you, as we improve the quality of the businesses, as you see the trends that we've backed kind of come come to the fore and, and you see sales and profit growth and we improve the quality of that that earnings you might see the the multiple start to increase and then as you move into the zone when you're most likely to realize you now know the market you're going to sell it into then you might see a further uplift notably despite that uplift historically for every asset we've sold on average we sold at 50 percent higher than where we held it. It's true. Our... I follow the sector as much as I can, and not just you, but the others. And every time a private equity fund sells something, it's always on a big gain. Mm. Um, nearly always on a big gain. And the ones that aren't, they're probably not shouting yeah. about. But... We're, not, we're not incentivized to hold these companies at particularly high valuations. We're not. So know... people say the valuations are quite conservative. 
and, and, and you get yeah. to see the full value when uh, there's a sale or realisation. Exactly. And so I, I guess to take that to that natural conclusion around the public markets is there is significant white space between, you know, we, I mean, I can only speak to Oakley, between the valuations we're holding companies at and where that, you know, if there are peer group for these companies, and very often there isn't within private equity because we're backing models or sectors that maybe haven't reached or may never reach the public markets. Um, but there is significant difference between the ratings in the in the public markets and the ra in the, bits, the ratings that we're holding these companies on. Yes. So, I mean, going back to Oakley Capital Investments. So that's this investment company on the London Stock Exchange and it invests. It's got, a, you know, exclusive right to invest in the funds that you're talking about at Oakley Capital. That's, that's exactly right. So let's just go back to those funds. There's five or six of those because there's another one on the launch pad, I think. So, so Oakley itself has currently... Um, five live funds with one as you say on the on the launch pad now to make that clearer there's actually two fund strategies right and you open these funds on the basis of vintage you open one you invest it in the first five years of its life and you divest it in the second five years after when it's almost fully invested 75 percent invested you typically open your next fund and so on and so forth oci as you rightly describe invested in that first fund um, it commits a certain amount of capital. That capital is slowly drawn down as it's made investments. And then as realizations happen, the funds flow back to OCI and then it commits to the next fund and the next fund and the next fund. Okay. And the, the funds very hopefully have are numbered <laughs> one to <laughs> yeah, five. Yeah. But there's one called, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but there's one called Origin, uh, which was launched last year, the year before, recently anyway. What, what's, uh, what's special about Origin? It's exactly the same strategy. It's the same sectors, technology, consumer, and, and education. It's got a digital focus, if not more so. Um, the only difference is, is it invests in, in slightly smaller companies. So it, it's investing equity checks below 50 million euros in companies that are slightly smaller. Okay. And, um, and OCI had a, state, a trading statement recently, first quarter statement. Uh, first time you've ever issued a quarterly statement. So um, you're increasing the, the communication with shareholders, which is good. But that trading statement showed a 6% uh, investment gain in the first three months of the year, um, which was a you know, continuation of um, the sort of returns you've been getting in the, uh, last year. Uh, and that seemed you know, at odds with um, the public uh, stock markets, which have been falling, particularly tech yeah stocks but you've explained a bit about why that could be yeah i mean I, I, look to state the obvious there's two things that contribute to the value of uh, they were on, low, on lower valuations no well so so there's performance and the valuation you apply to that performance we've slightly addressed the the valuation point and that actually our valuations are so far away from the public markets that th there really isn't an impact on them i mean to take that through as natural that 14 times average ev bits are is about half the valuation of the average NASDAQ company's on, but they're growing 50% faster. Yeah. And so they're really, you wouldn't expect And they're making profits, because going back to your point about you're, you're, you like companies that have got recurring revenues, they're established businesses, even if they're growing quickly, they're not a startups. Absolutely. And so then, then that gives me the opportunity to talk about the performance point, which I guess is your other point. If we, if, we, if we determine the fact that we shouldn't expect to see much volatility, most of that NAV growth that you described, that 6%, in the first quarter of this year, which has had a lot of attention, as you can imagine, was driven by performance. 75% of that growth was driven by EBITDA growth. It's profits coming through. Exactly. It's and, not and, people getting excited about these companies and, <laughs> no. you know, and valuing them just higher because, yeah. you know, there's a race to invest in them. Exactly. And, and so in a kind of 
what's what's driving? I mean, it's hard. You've got twenty two companies, so it's hard to kind of, in a nutshell, describe exactly what's you know kind of delivering that growth. But in most of these cases, these are companies that are investing behind some kind of long long term trend. They are not relying upon you know kind of economic strength, cyclical strength, consumer you know kind of um, strength. They they are we are investing behind some kind of shift in the paradigm of businesses or consumers or education. That shift to the cloud that businesses are very keen to do at the moment as they look to increase efficiency, get more for less, um, as consumers wish to adopt more digital solutions because frankly they're cheaper, they're you know a better solution than the ones they've currently got, or in education, globally there is a greater drive for accessible, higher quality education. Um, now some of those trends may feel quite mature here in the UK, but they are far from mature in other countries around the world. I mean, if I can give you a quick example, we own the number one price comparison website in Italy called Facile. Excuse my Italian pronunciation. Um, now, why might you own that? You know, is that like, well, I could buy money supermarket here in the mm -hmm. UK and that's probably a bit more, you know, it's probably a bit larger. And so what's the excitement of owning that? Well, the, the excitement of owning something like that is they are years behind where we are in the, are in the UK. Um, to give an example, car insurance, 80% of car insurance here in the UK um, is transacted online via a price comparison website or via an insurance portal. In Italy, pre-pandemic, it was more like 10 to 12% of car insurance was arranged online. Even after the pandemic, it's only like 15 to 17%. And so there is there's huge growth that we're seeing, we're enjoying here. We're not relying upon the growth in the insurance market. We're not relying on the growth of broadband or utilities or whatever. It's the idea that steadily the Italian public are beginning to adopt digital solutions, but they are quite a, a step behind places like the UK, maybe Germany. So there's a big structural shift going on. People moving online. That's a that's a clearly a, a, a big and ongoing trend. Mm. But you know how uh, how can you be confident? How confident are you about prospects for these kind of consumer facing businesses when you know we've got warnings around stagflation? Just from you know we're speaking today, the Bank of England is you know raised interest rates to just one percent. But you know there's big warnings over the impact um, on mm. the economy and uh, and 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 Europe. You know yeah. facing a recession because of the impact of. Uh, the war in Ukraine. I mean, let's be clear. I've got, no, I've got no confidence in the consumer if yeah. that, from a standpoint. I, mean, I completely agree with you. You know, there is a concern around cyclicality. You know, inflation is clearly not transitory. You know, there is understandable concerns around European recession. So let's let's acknowledge that to begin with. I think the reason we have such confidence in the prospects of the companies that we're dealing with here, and and let's focus on those consumer businesses. I mean, it's like factually. It's like if, if you're in an inflationary environment, price comparison websites perform well. You are looking to save money. Your, your cost of living is going up. What you now pay in a, in, a, in a falling price environment, you're less bothered. You're less bothered about shopping around. You're probably happy to go to the, gen, you know, the gentleman down the high street who has a shop that your family's been going to, some broker for years and years and years. Now that's changing. Not only am I probably doing my shopping online, maybe for the first time, I'm also looking to save money on insurance or broadband. It goes for the same for businesses. You know, Idealista is the number one property portal in Southern Europe. Now, again, it's probably half the penetration of something like Rightmove, but funnily enough here in the UK, 
But funny enough, companies are now thinking, well, I probably need to save money on my marketing spend. Where am I going to spend it? I'm probably going to get more bang for my buck digitally. Um, or it's a solution that, for example, you know, online fitness, which is, it's, it's got relatively low adoption. We happen to own 7XT, which is a brand, Gimondo, which provides online fitness classes and nutrition guidance in Germany. It's the number one provider of that, focused particularly on the female market. Now, clearly, if your cost of your gym is going up, which it obviously will do as a result of inflation, uh, so um, staff wage inflation, energy bills, etc. Plus, there is a shift in the you know the desire to where you train and exercise. We're seeing going to see greater adoption of those solutions. Um, exactly. Maybe we should talk about uh, some of the other companies um, uh, that you invest in. Um, and I'm thinking which one to ask you for. But I think Time Out is the, one of the oldest and well, maybe the company, you know, you're best known as an investor in. And, uh, you know, that would link into the digitization theme you were mm. just talking about. I mean, that's the publisher of the, the well-known uh, listings magazine. Sure. Um, but imagine it's, it's, it's yeah, tell, tell us about that because that's obviously faced the challenges of online, um, moving online. Yeah. So the but also it's been developing a completely new diff business. True. I mean, the, op the opportunity you identified there is to take a kind of magazine publisher, digitize it, and, and really take advantage of a, its huge recognition as a brand globally. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small company, um, but, but here we are talking about it because of the quality and size of that brand. We really wanted to kind of help it realize its true value. So we did. We moved it from a magazine publisher to online, taking it from 10 million audience to now just shy of 70 million. Um, and we got lucky. Our Time Out Portugal opened a market, which is effectively a physical version of Time Out, the best food and drink and culture of a particular region. And it's proved to be an enormously successful um, concept. In Portugal, it's actually the most touristed location in Portugal. Four million people a year visit it. And we decided that let's replicate this winning formula. And actually in 2019, we opened five new markets in cities around the world. Unfortunately, COVID came along. That must have been difficult. <laughs> that, that promptly closed the six markets we now had. And of course, you know, a, a media business that was orientated or telling you what to do when you go out and you couldn't go out um, was an unfortunate position to be in. That the, the business pivoted and actually started to provide time in content. Um, the audience, in fact, grew. And now, kind of post-COVID, if, if I can call this post-COVID, um, we're seeing the markets back open and trading, some at, at kind of pre-COVID levels, uh, and we're pretty optimistic about the prospects of the group going forward. Okay, um, great. Thanks for that. And another, another one that people, uh, listeners in, in London uh, or in the South uh, may be familiar with, you've mentioned the sort of property portal in, in Italy, I think, um, but uh, Dexter's, hmm. the uh, London estate agent, that's another company you're backing. What's interesting about them? What's interesting about them? I think... The, the, the decision we've taken here is that with our real estate and property portal experience, we've realized the power of those kind of platforms. And so to take a brand that is established, high quality and successful here in the UK and give them, but entirely offline, and give them a, a, a digital solution was really the opportunity we've seen here. Most companies, 75% of the companies we invest already have a digital solution. That's what we're buying into, that disruption. Dexter was a good example of someone who didn't, and we thought we could bring them into that subset. So 75% of their sales is lettings. 
And we were kind of impressed by that, how resilient that is as a, as a revenue model. It's grown 10, 15% across the cycle year on year. So incredibly reliable, but it wasn't offering that kind of online, light touch, low cost kind of landlord solution. So take your market positioning, take your brand, but expand it into a marketplace that they weren't touching on. Okay. And then um, moving on to maybe some sort of bigger uh, holdings, um, Tech Insights, uh, not a company I'd heard of, but um, you sold it um, in February for mm. a big, uh, big premium over um, your original investment, 131% premium. So uh, yeah, it's an, an, an analytical platform for semiconductor industry. It is. Yeah. What, what's, what's that? <laughs> what's that? It's, a good, it's a good question, Gavin. So um, I think firstly to say that we um, we still remain invested in Tech Insights, so you know it's still relevant as an OCI shareholder. Ah, oh, so that's an example of where you've sort of taken profits in one fund but gone back in in another. But we, but yeah, our decision. Look, we you, you do have that limitation with a private equity fund, and that you do have to harvest the investments at some point. Because you said they've got a ten-year life. life. Exactly. So at some point, you you want to return the money to to investors. Exactly. But if you still like the companies that you're invested in then another fund has to kind of come in. Completely. And I think that's now been accepted as a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a strategy that makes sense. You've got all this intellectual capital as well as capital that you've invested in these companies. You know them now better than anyone else. You're best positioned to decide. That kind of runs to counter to kind of like the critique or criticism of it private does. equity as being short term. Like yeah. You've got funds that last for five years, 10 years, and you know, you're in and out and it's a timetable led thing. But in fact, if you've got another fund to pass on to, you can be a much more longer term Back yeah, in. and the fact that you can have the, you know, what's referred to as crossover investments that move from one fund vintage to another is now increasingly the case. And, and, and we're pleased to say that you know a, a new fund should have you know twenty five percent of the greatest hits. Or as an OCI shareholder, we should be able to continue to get exposed to some of these really interesting companies, and when we won't be forced to kind of withdraw from them. So if I describe Tech Insights for you. Um, so you describe it correctly. Essentially, what the business does is it takes, you know, the iPhone in our in our pockets or mobile device, uh, and and does what it, it tears them down is the industry terminology for it. It basically analyzes them at a, at a nano level, so it can understand the technology within the semiconductor chip within it. Who cares about that? Um, what if you are a manufacturer of semiconductor chips or a designer or an OEM or whatever? You. In it, when we first invested, most of the work we did was for those manufacturers wanting to establish whether or not their IP was being fringed in, a, in someone else's device. So it was Apple saying, Tech Insights, can you analyze the latest Samsung phone? Because I'm suspicious what's in their current, you know, kind of latest chip. Um, and, and they're one of the few companies in the world that can do that. It's an incredibly um, valuable service they provide. But a lot of their service was quite lumpy. Now what we've done in, is enjoyed two things as a result of our ownership. One, we changed the, the revenue model so it's much more subscription. It's all these global providers now subscribe to our kind of database of analysis and information about all the semiconductor-led devices. So it's not one-off project fees, but every year... If they've signed We've, up, they just kind of you, money rolls in. Exactly. 60, 70% of the revenue is now subscription. So much higher quality, much higher multiple, you know, type, type um, business. And of course, stating the obvious, we've seen a huge bloom in the usage occasion of semiconductors, you know, whether it's been the internet of things, um, five, the dawn of 5G, um, the, the adoption of, 
I, I guess more devices becoming mobile has meant that there are so many more verticals now for tech insights to kind of move into and begin the analysis of. I mean, so the scope for the business is now huge. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like a huge global niche. And also it seems to very much link into, you know, Peter Dubin's uh, interests, you know, in his internet uh, at the beginning. And I'll just, he's the manager, just his role and, and you know, the size of the team and, and in, in um, assessing these kind of deals and these investments. So he's the managing partner. Hmm. You know, is he very sort of um, actively involved in in an investment or an assessment of a company like Tech Insights, or is there a much bigger team that you're a part of? And there is a much big. There's a much bigger team now. I mean, he's assembled beneath him a kind of a bench of you know nine, ten partners um, beneath him. You've got an investment team of thirty five. The originate. I mean, origination is a. It is a significant process and project. It's not a like public equity where you kind of like. There's your thousand companies. Choose one. There of them. they are listed on the top. Yeah, exactly, yeah. ready to go. I mean, these companies are not ready to go by any stretch of the imagination, and it may take a number of years to get to the point in which you might, you know, where the founder is now ready to bring on an investor. So you're spending a lot of time in actually sort of, you know, keeping your eyes and ears open, and talking I mean, to people, we're, we're, encouraging com them. Companies might be in our pipeline for many years. Some, you know, may happen significantly, and and catalysts in the market like COVID, like the current you know, kind of environment, um, economic or, or, or geopolitical uncertainty can create moments in time when more opportunities come around. But, you know, there's a lot of time and effort, you know, kind of goes into that. To your, to your original question, Peter's less involved with that now as he may, you know, he would have definitely that been at the forefront of that. And in, in where he's important is, is one, determining the culture of this firm and its kind of entrepreneurial approach. And secondly, He's, he's kind of determined, he'll still sit down with the founders, he'll still be there as a sounding board, he'll still ensure that we offer to them exactly what we, you know, he set out to offer them when he first launched the funds. Okay. Uh, now, so, you know, those, those themes of, you know, consumer digital and uh, technology, you know, so, you know fit in, in with his original uh, interest. I'm intrigued by the, the very big theme around education that you've already mm. sort of mentioned. And there's, uh, you know, there's several investments you've got in that theme. And, uh, for example, IU Group is one of the um, uh, big performers for you last year, I understand. But yeah, tell me about what, what is it about uh, online education? Is it online education? Or, it is. Or? Well, I mean, I guess uh, as a thesis, our ed education is across all types. There is varying levels of kind of ed tech within some of these solutions. So we've, we've, we've backed, you know, kind of nursery education here in the UK, premium kind of private schools globally was our first investment um, within education kind of back in, in um, 2013. It's tertiary education, it's higher education, it's after school tutoring of children. I think all playing to this idea that, you know, there is a, this, this, this growing demand for high quality education. This is private education. Non-state education we're talking about. Exactly that, yeah, in, in, in all its forms. Um, and to touch on IU Group, which is significant for a number of reasons. I mean, one, it's obviously made it a great performer for us and therefore worth touching on, but it's also, of all the 22 companies, it, it, it of the NAVs, 15% of it, the largest exposure to any one company is to IU Group. So 15% of the investment company's net asset value, that's the NAV, Exactly, is exposed to that one company. Oh, see, there's a big holding. So it, it is a segment holding. So, so what is it? Well, it's the largest and fastest growing university in Germany as a starting point. What's driving that growth is it delivers the majority of its degrees online. That doesn't sound, you know, 
particularly a massive revelation. Um, but what it's found itself doing is it's pretty all the elements to that it does better than any other provider it's created a platform that has not just become popular in germany which actually online education was pretty nascent when they when they launched um you know kind of 10 years or so it's actually now become an international platform so what does it do well one it it establishes the courses that people want to study at any given time it's not, you know, the restraint, the constraints of a physical university is that you've only got so many classrooms, so many lecture halls, so many lecturers, and you probably have a reputation for a certain subject matter. So you are pretty confined to providing those those things. This is about providing education when you require it and in courses that matter to you and are relevant to you. And they now, you know, provide something in the region of, you know, three, four hundred courses in German and in English. And who are they attracting to that service? The average age of an IU student is 25 to 35. They have typically seven, seven out of 10 of them have not come from an academic background. So therefore probably don't have a degree. They're looking to either get a degree for the first time or get an relevant degree based upon where their careers have taken them. Um, they are in work probably. Um, and they, they may have other commitments like families, you can imagine kind of being that age. And so online education is probably one of the only solutions that could work for them. And this is now establishing itself as one of the leading providers of online education or online degrees um, in, in Europe. And how do their degrees, the quality of their degrees stack up with the more traditional uh, providers, universities? Well, I mean, the I guess there's two ways to kind of judge that. One, there's the feedback from the from from the customer. I think that's, that's a very different way in which we view our the students of an IU um, is that very much they're our customer and the feedback from them um, and the recognition of the group is very high. Um, average earnings growth from the cohort that we've been allies so far is at least kind of up 20% as a result. So hopefully demonstrating these are high quality degrees which have a very high completion rate as well for, for online education. Okay. Um uh, it, it sounds like a, a, a very interesting and uh, fast-growing area. Um, you talk about the democratisation of, of the education theme, mm. and I can see, you know, what you're talking about from what you just said. But um, you know, uh, sort of moving on, you know, is private equity being democratised? Because in a sense, you know, the, the underlying funds that you, you, you've, we've been talking about, uh, you know, ordinary investors, I imagine they're limited partnerships or whatever, the be um, the ordinary investors wouldn't be able to invest in them on their own, but they can through uh, Oakley Capital Investments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Is it? I mean, it is starting, but it, it really needs to kind of move faster. And, and I guess the limitations are, you know, to, to invest directly into the funds themselves, there are now platforms that are aggregating consumer, you know, kind of the demand of the man or woman in the street to enable them to have enough you know, combined wealth to invest in a private equity fund. But it's still really the preserve of high net worth individuals, I would argue. The other thing is, well, you're committing it for 10 years. Now, you're not drawn on that, you know, that money immediately. You don't commit £10 and have to pay over the £10. But still, you've got to be committed to that fund for 10 years. It's quite a long period of time, which doesn't, you know, suit, you know, kind of um, so you've got to commit, you know, private. OCI, the investment company has to commit to the underlying funds. Exactly. But an investor can just go in and out of that investment company exactly. as and when they like. So, do, so, so listed PE does, does really provide, I think, a true democratisation of PE. Yeah. 
we're a relatively small sector. We're not particularly well known. Um, but there's a lot. Of, but it's but it's growing fast. There's a lot of attention exactly. to it. There's a lot of I mean, public equity fund managers, increasingly, yeah. including unquoted companies in their funds. Completely. And as I chat to kind of you know our peers, you know I met up with Harbourvest yesterday. We're both you know we're both saying the same thing that as a result of the last couple of years, maybe that's because of you know kind of COVID and people taking more opportunity to invest their own assets for the first time, to join webinars, to getting much greater access to companies like ourselves. Um, we're seeing the retail platforms grow significantly in our register. I mean, probably pre-COVID, we were probably 5% of our shareholder register was the retail platforms. Today, and it's the same for a lot of my peers, you know, they're 13, 15% of a register is now individuals buying through, you know, Hargreaves, Lansdowne or Interactive. And that's a big increase from where it was before. The other thing that I think what's, what's really important about that question is that yeah, private equity, I think, had, had a kind of reputation for being, you know, whether it was they were vultures or it was specialist or it was in certain kind of companies. This is everyday capital now. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to show that the private equity is investing in, you know, more mainstay businesses, more stable, mission critical businesses than the public markets, which has got a bit of an appetite for risk, yeah. you know, more more frequently and maybe less proven models. Um, and so consequently, and of course, there's a lot of capital going into private equity. And so what was a young industry 10 years ago, and you didn't have the option of being backed as a company by private equity, you now do. And so consequently, more companies are you know staying private full stop or staying private for longer the ipo window as we know in the public market is currently reasonably shut that's the uh, initial public offer flotation exactly market. so new so fewer new companies are coming to the public market at the moment so if you don't invest in private equity you're saying you, you know you'd be missing out on a whole universe of, of companies you'll be missing out on 20 percent of the gdp of the uk if you're not accessing this company you know two million people are essentially employed through private equity backed companies that's just in the uk if you look in the US, you've got 14,000 companies that are listed and falling in number, and you've got institutionally backed private companies are about 18,000 and growing in number. I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, yes, we're outperforming public markets and we have done for quite a number of years. And yes, so well, like OCI, you know, is producing a really, you know, high quality, really attractive NAV growth, which is driving, you know, great shareholder returns. But aside from that, philosophically, you want exposure to an asset class, which is so fundamental you know, to everyday businesses, you know, here and around the world. I think that, you know, that the case is, is well made. And yet, you know, your shares and those of Harbourvest, who you mentioned a minute mm. ago, and, you know, nearly all the London listed uh, private equity funds, you know, are trading on wide discounts. Um, I think yours is currently 25% below that asset value. So, mm. yes, the, you know, the long term, the past performance is, is good, um, but the shares aren't fully reflecting that uh, performance, even though the shareholder returns have been uh, good as well. So I guess in some ways that increased uh, private investor involvement is people seeing a bargain. You know? These things are trading at steep discounts. But it also just suggests that there is still a, you know, a lot of sort of some sort of suspicion or misunderstanding yeah, of what's absolutely. going on because some of these funds, I don't know, was equally capital around in the, during the financial crisis, but the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 was very painful for investors mm. in private mm. equity uh, funds. Um, they, they, they crashed basically and they'd overextended themselves. Yeah, I think, I think, well, there, I, I, there's two, there's two points you, you make there. And, and I think your first one is, is right. The one of the reasons discounts prevail is that, you know, we're a, we're a small sector. We're not particularly well known. It takes time and un to understand the different managers and the underlying companies. 
but we are doing more. You know, you, you mentioned right up front at the start of our conversation that we, you know, just announced a quarterly now for the first time. You know, there is there is more transparency, there's greater communication, you know, there are you know, kind of podcasts like yours that are that are bringing light and attention to the, to this kind of great asset class, which will attract more people to it. And in time, if we can maintain the performance um, over the long term, as we are as we are doing, grow in scale, increasing liquidity, then that discount will almost certainly close. Uh, and you know, as as us and peers have done, you know, demonstrating how cheap the shares are, we have an ongoing share buyback. We've been buying back shares. This, this this week hopefully underline the fact that you know these are the wrong valuations for these for these fast growing you know kind of high quality assets to your point and understandably you know last year if you were cautious about private equity last year you were like well i mean everyone's tr everyone's doing well it's a bull market of course you you know you grew by 35 percent um and you know the discounts are closing and i've and i've missed my opportunity um, and you and you think that the only way is down, and then along comes then, the growth sell-off, stagflation yeah. fears, and then it's exactly. Back out again. So you've got big, you've got big discounts. Now everyone's like, oh, but do you not remember the global financial crisis? But I think the thing to say about the global financial crisis that was a that was a liquidity issue. That was a that was a debt liquidity issue, um, for one. So when you talk about overextended, you know, kind of listed PE funds, there was you know at least one listed PE fund that took on a lot of debt in order to meet the commitments of the underlying companies. If those underlying companies are then very cyclical um, and you know, kind of in, in the middle of a crash start to spiral, they need a lot more investment. The underlying companies, the underlying fund, that fund, listed funds, is not getting capital flying back to it. It's got debt that it's got suddenly got to keep um, servicing and you ended up in a death spiral. I would say I do and happily own the shares of most of the listed people. I was going to ask you, now. do you have skin in the game? When you, well, I've, you do? I've got skin in the game in OCI, as do, as do my fellow partners. We own about 12% of, of OCI. But I you know, happily own some of the peer group. Why? Because I think those that have survived the test of time are high quality managers. And the sector's in a much better state. You know, you've got lots of cash in your balance sheet. So do your we rivals. Are, we have no leverage and most of our peers have no leverage at the at the fund level, at the investment company level. And also, you know, I can only speak for to to Oakley portfolio companies. But whilst we deploy debt, we do so in a relatively modest way. I mean, we're talking it may be it may be higher multiples than um, than the public markets, but it's you know kind of three four times net debt to EBITDA. I mean, private equity average is like seven eight times. I mean, it's kind of relatively modest, and for particular companies where it's appropriate. So there just isn't that. That strain, there isn't that liquidity problem also that we're, you know, that we saw at the GFC it was a very different. I mean, banks stopped lending as well. I mean, it was a, there was a whole. It was you know, a global cumulative... credit crunch. It was, it, exactly. it, it was, it was very severe, obviously. But, um, yeah, the private equity sector does seem to sort of yeah come off worse from kind of investor opinion. As you were saying, is that if there's a reason to think to be worried about it, you, you, investors mm. seem to sort of focus on that. And I'm just wondering, you know, some of that uh, lingering suspicion from the financial crisis. You know, the sector has uh, advanced and improved since then. But I think you know charges are often raised as an issue by mm. investors. You know, like okay, I accept it's an important asset class. I can accept you know there's an investment thesis there. Mm -hmm. It's undervalued. And the shares are cheap, and that sort of thing. But the, but you're certainly paying for it. And that's maybe does that feed into a sense that uh, you know the private equity fund managers are going to do better than the uh, underlying investors? Yeah, look, f fees and how they're represented, particularly using the kind of key information documents, 
will be one of the deterrents. I think those that invest. Are you thinking in it, they're giving a false impression? Because you're you're given a fee, and if you invest in a hog of Lansdowne, it will say you're about to invest in OCI shares. As a result of the you know ten pounds you're going to invest, you know twenty pence of that will go towards you know fees. But I mean it doesn't. It's misrepresented. Um, the the performance of you know the the Oakley Capital Funds and the performance of OCI that we discuss here that. 35% growth in that is after those fees. It's a net, it's net of that performance. Now, if we weren't delivering you performance, you'd be quite right not to want to pay any fees, but you're you're getting something. There is a quid pro quo. Um, no, I totally agree that, that all the impressive uh, uh, returns generated by yourselves and and, and, uh, and your competitors um, are after fees. But nevertheless, you know, how much are you, are, is an investor uh, paying to hold and uh, invest in, in OCI? So, so OCI pays the same fees as anyone investing in an, an Oakley fund. So they are typically broadly around a 2% management fee and a 20% performance fee above a 8% hurdle. So we have to deliver a certain performance before we get paid anything. But it's a... Kind of quite classic two and twenty. Yep, and uh, and, and maybe to many that kind of maybe feels outdated or high, particularly compared to the public equity funds. Exactly. But there is a dramatic difference between what was required to you know kind of manage. Let's talk about the management fee first. I mean, a, a public equity fund, you could have one if not a small number of individuals running multiple billions of pounds. And as we 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 discussed earlier, you know the the companies are already there. Um, sitting on the stock market, you don't have to build them, construct them, do anything with them. You literally just select them. Here, um, you know, we're, we're working as we described for many years. It's a 35 strong, highly skilled kind of investment team that is working not only to identify, but to construct, you know, these companies with a lot of heavy lifting to kind of and there's, 22, just, and there's 22 companies that you're investing That's in currently. currently, currently yeah. Yeah. But if you so think, that is quite a concentrated list. That does, I, do, I do kind of get the idea that there's a lot of background work going on because a public equity fund manager or group could well be backing hundreds, thousands of different companies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they probably wouldn't look to get exposure more than 1% or 2% of their funds to any one company. You know, here we are making, you know, very, you know, kind of concentrated decisions. If you're comparing a fund, you know, um, a public equity fund to a, to a private equity fund. Um, and the level of engagement that's required with those companies is significant. You know, we will also have a sustainability team, a communications team kind of there to help them, a talent, you know, team. There is a whole raft of other resources that we put at the disposal of these private companies. It's the reason that you choose to be, you know, kind of private equity backed. Plus, we have at least one, if not two, seats on the board. Every company will have a team of four or five that are working them relatively consistently, not you know, kind of once a month, but on a kind of weekly basis. There is a you know significant cost. That's thirty-five investment team, a team of a hundred in total, that is managing, let's say, five billion of of AUM compared to what I've just described could run five billion of assets under management in a public company. It's night and it's night and day. Um, now, sure, as the funds get larger in size, you see some economies of scale and you might see that management fee come down. But typically for funds, you know, kind of under, you know, or, or around 2 billion, 2%, pretty typical in the industry. And then let's touch on the performance fee. I mean, one, I think, I think two things is that if you don't perform, you don't get paid. I mean, there's no kind of additional kind of gouge. You have to perform. And secondly, it has to be realized performance. You have to sell an asset, make a profit after costs, and from that, 
a performance fee is, is charged. It's not unrealized gains as you might see in, in other asset class or a Pitsian public equity. That it, it has to be kind of realized. And frankly, if you weren't delivering those gains, we wouldn't see the inflows into private equity funds that we're currently seeing. Okay, so you're basically saying you're 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 worth you're worth the money, and if you are getting the big bucks, uh, it means that the underlying investors have had a good return. Sure, and you also attract talent to the industry as well. Frankly, mm -hmm. I mean that's one of, you know one of the important things about about fees is that you you also get what you pay for from that. Okay. Excellent. Well, I expect uh, we're not going to end that debate uh, now, but um, it, it, thank you very much uh, for talking to me, Stephen. Um, it's been uh, very interesting to hear you uh, explain the sector and give some insights into you know, what is quite uh, uh, you know, a different sounding um, private equity investment company, Oakley Capital Investments. Stephen, thanks very much. Thank you.